Okay, um, <clears throat> thus far in our uh, study of the doctrine of the church, we've looked at the church from a biblical theological perspective, from an historical theological perspective, and over the past several weeks we've considered a number of particular doctrinal matters that are essential to understanding what the church is. <clears throat> Beginning next week, we're going to focus more practically on what it is to be the body of Christ living in community together. We'll look at a number of one another passages and some other things. <clears throat> but today will be the last week in which we're going to focus doctrinally on what the church is. And specifically, we're going to look at the culture and the church and the hope of the church. So, um, first, with regard to the culture of the church, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> a lot of this material I'm drawing from Jeffrey Johnson's book, The Church, Why Bother? And uh, he points out in the opening words of his chapter dealing with the culture of the church, that the church exists and was brought into existence to bring glory to God. And he identifies holiness as being essential to glorifying God and also the necessity of truth to produce and to perfect holiness. So the purpose of glorifying God, the necessity of holiness and the necessity of truth. So the church is to live as a holy people in light of the truth as we seek to bring the gospel to a dark, hostile world. Therefore, the church should not be influenced and shaped by the culture, but should be rather a sanctifying influence upon the culture. The church and the world are at odds with each other. <clears throat> he says the church is holy and is called to be holy, and the world is unholy and will always be unholy. The culture of the world is shaped by its values, the things of the flesh, while the culture of the church is shaped by its values, the things of the spirit, and these are continually in conflict with one another. Living as the church in a culture shaped by worldly values poses a serious threat to the church that it will begin to be influenced by the values of the world, that it will lose the proper distinction between holiness and worldliness, and thus, as a result, will forget its purpose. And when this happens, the church will become increasingly man-centered rather than God-centered or Christ-centered. <clears throat> now, there are several things that can cause the church to move in the direction of minimizing the holiness of the church. But one primary cause is the desire to have a broader impact upon society. <clears throat> and while the cult, I'm sorry, while the church should always be concerned about how to be more effective for Christ, the danger comes in when the interest of reaching others becomes more important than the interest in glorifying Christ. <clears throat> in the purpose of the church and in the worship of the church and in the ministry of the church. So the purpose of glorifying Christ has to be kept central 
or there's that danger of drifting into worldliness and man-centeredness. In a culture where numbers are equated with success and holiness is a hindrance to drawing large numbers, cultural conformity begins to take place so that unbelieving secular people can feel at ease in the church and not feel the discomfort of being in the presence of a holy God being worshipped by his called out and holy people. All kinds of accommodations can be made to appeal to the worldly interests of the target audience in the facilities, in the atmosphere, in the ambience, in the music, the dress, all kinds of things provided from coffee bars to, you know, comfortable couches or whatever. Um, and ultimately the message content uh, is also uh, accommodated to those worldly interests um, and w- whatever else may be needed to uh, help draw people in. And with churches that have this focus, keeping on the cutting edge of cultural trends um, in order to stay relevant is a driving interest. In Scripture, by contrast, we see those who are confronted with the presence of God, we see them being awestruck by His holiness and responding with fear, humility, brokenness, and a holy joy. And this should be what churches seek in their worship. So that if an unbeliever comes in, as Paul says, they might fall on their face and declare that God is really among you. In addition to minimizing the holiness of the church, as the focus becomes more man-centered, the effect is that the church begins to minimize the unholiness of the world. That is, the world and the church begin to look more alike and people are basically seen to be basically good. Sin is not seen as the great problem and the plight of man and salvation becomes substituted with a self-help program. Johnson puts it this way. He says... No longer does the world need Christ to be a redeemer who saves mankind from its depravity, but for Christ to be the great example who brings relief to the underprivileged, the sick, and the hungry. The mission of the church shifts from redeeming sinners to redeeming culture. Now, in his book, Ashamed of the Gospel, John MacArthur writes, worldliness is the sin of allowing one's appetites, ambitions, or conduct to be fashioned according to earthly values. So when the church knowingly and purposefully runs after the trends and the influences of the world to help gain the approval of the world, then the church becomes worldly. The world doesn't need a worldly church. It needs a church which can properly expose its needs, its depravity, its sin, and it needs a gospel that is shaped to to that need to bring salvation and hope in Christ alone. The ancient gospel is still and always will be relevant to those who are perishing. 
And it still connects with those who are quickened by the Spirit to put their trust in Christ. The church should first and foremost be concerned about the reputation of Christ and the reputation that the church seeks for itself should be one of truth, unity, and holiness reflecting Christ's own character. We are called to worship in the beauty of holiness. So why would we then pursue the vanity of this world in our worship as many do? Johnson poignantly states, just because we live in Vanity Fair does not mean that we have to look like Vanity Fair to warn the lovers of Vanity Fair to forsake Vanity Fair. And what an apt statement that is when you consider how so many churches today are are really doing just that. It's it's a fool's errand. Well, now let's talk about the hope of the church. And we're going to talk about, first, the gospel and justice. Mark Dever identifies two principles that help clarify the relationship between the church and matters of social justice. The first is that the activities of the collective institutional local church should be viewed distinctly from the activities of the church's individual members in their various vocations, at work, at home, in their families, as fathers, mothers, children, and in the larger community. Secondly, the church's activity must be understood in light of the church's ultimate hope. So we need to make a distinction between the activities of the church as a collective institution and those of individual believers, and we need to see the church's activities in light of the church's ultimate hope. As individual Christians, we are called to live lives of love, of justice, of generosity toward others. And this is to find expression in ways and in places that the Bible doesn't call the institutional church to act. In other words, organically, the church works in ways that it is not called to act institutionally. Uh, Dever uses a helpful analogy from marriage to make this point. As a married man goes to work as a married man, he goes to the store as a married man, he meets people in various contexts and places as a married man. Now, does the fact that he is married affect how he interacts with others at work and in the store? It it does. It, it, It certainly affects how he acts. But neither his work nor his shopping are an intrinsic part of being married. And and Dever points out that this is similar to how, in, in their daily life, an individual church member follows Christ in all sorts of ways that are not tied directly to the work that God entrusts to the local church in an institutional fashion. But nevertheless, the individual's membership should affect how he does everything outside the gathered church. We live as a member of the church, as a Christian, but we don't always act individually as part of the collective institution. Individually, we are all created for God's glory and pleasure and are to be devoted to him supremely. Um, Matthew 22 
36 to 40 identifies this as the great commandment. When Jesus was asked, Teacher, what is the great commandment of the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So he says... And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And in Luke 10, where we see this text referenced also, we see that the scope of this love that we are to have for our neighbor is not restricted to some narrow sense of who our neighbor is. You remember in that occasion, the person was seeking to justify himself and and trying to narrow the idea of who his neighbor was. That's where Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan. And the bottom line is that your neighbor is whoever you find, and particularly, in short, it is your fellow human being, particularly as you find him in his need. And the fact is that all people have all kinds of needs, physical, spiritual, emotional or social. So compassion for all peoples should be a distinguishing mark of all Christians. And there are two reasons that ought to profoundly move us to love and to compassion for others. And the first is the fact that they are created in God's image, according to Genesis 1.27. We share with them this amazing honor of calling uh, uh, and calling as his image bearers. We should therefore respect their dignity and we should desire their good simply because they're made in God's image. James 3.9 condemns the wicked use of the tongue in cursing God's image bearers. And he says, with it, that is our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father and with it, We curse people who are made in the likeness of God. And he says this should not be. There's a great incongruity in that. Also, Proverbs 14.31 parallels our treatment of man with our attitude toward his maker. And there it says, Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. So that's the first motive that we have in, in showing this compassion is that they're made in God's image and we should treat them accordingly. Secondly, we should be merciful and compassionate because we ourselves have known such undeserved kindness and generosity from God. So we are exhorted by Jesus in Luke 6, 32 to 36, where he says... If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. Then he says, but love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, 
for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, therefore, even as your Father is merciful. So, we've received this mercy. We should be generous and merciful to all. Also consider 2 Corinthians 8, verses 8 to 9, where Paul says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So again, you see this, this generosity toward us uh, displayed in Christ's self-sacrifice. Um, and then the call here is that we would show that same type of mercy and love for others. Also, finally, James 2.13 says this, For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So, considering all this, we need to understand it is a privilege to serve any human being. And in doing so, we have the joy of reflecting God's own character in that service. We will be like our Father in heaven. And it also reflects the sacrificial love of Christ. And in this sense, various ministries of compassion and justice are reflections of Christ's self-giving for us in the gospel. So we should seek then to enable others to know and to benefit from God's provisions in common grace. We should desire that people enjoy food and water that they have stable family relations and jobs, that the institutions of government be righteous and promote justice. These are all right and things that we ought to desire. And desiring these ends, it is good and it's appropriate and it's wise, therefore, for Christians and for congregations to act to promote those ends. Just because we're citizens of the righteous kingdom of heaven does not mean that we should be indifferent to injustice in the kingdoms of the earth. Just because we are made members of God's eternal family does not mean that we should neglect to promote permanence and stability in temporal family relationships here and now. And just because we have our ultimate spiritual sustenance provided for us in Christ, who is the bread of life, does not mean that we have no concern for those in need of physical bread. We don't have a platonic view of the world where physical things are devalued. Now we put them in proper perspective in light of eternity, but God created all things good, and he has given us principles for promoting the good of others in all things, as we do all things unto the Lord. But while all this is true, and ought to be a concern of every Christian, at the same time, Christ has given the church a unique institutional mandate to proclaim the gospel to all people, and to display and model 
and express the life of that gospel in the midst of the fallen world. No other entity on earth has this calling. And in obedience to this institutional mandate to make disciples of all nations, local churches have the liberty and the responsibility to consider how they might show mercy and compassion in their community and in the world, whether collectively or individually. So while congregations, as congregations institutionally, may plan and act in an effort to meet the physical needs of non-Christians and to promote temporal justice and mercy, Scripture nevertheless does not require local congregations as congregations to organize either by themselves or in cooperation with others to alleviate the physical needs of non-Christians in their community. Christians are required to love mercy and to do justly. And the local congregation is required to equip believers to live faithfully and humbly and compassionately. But the local congregation is not required to organize and implement strategic plans for ministries of mercy, though they may do so in whatever areas, in whatever ways that they may choose. The point is not to confuse the mission of the church as being the fulfillment of the Great Commission with the unique responsibility of proclaiming the gospel and making disciples. Mercy ministries can come alongside of that, and they can be things that we engage in, but it's not the calling of the church as an institution to do those things. So it is the calling of all individuals to live in such a way that we seek to love others and meet the needs that, that we are aware of. <clears throat> so whatever social action or ministries of mercy we may be involved in, these must not be mistaken for evangelism and must never take the place of evangelism. They may be a means to evangelism, but they are not evangelism. And nothing must obscure the church's central obligation to preach the gospel. <clears throat> In commenting on the church of the New Testament period, J. Gresham Machen uh, wrote that material benefits were never valued in the apostolic age for their own sake. They were never regarded as substitutes for spiritual things. That lesson needs to be learned. Social betterment, though important, is insufficient. It must always be supplemented by God's unspeakable gift. Now another point closely related should also be noted, and that is, in serving others in these various ways, we are living faithfully, but we are not living the gospel. You've probably heard the saying, preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words. And this has been uh, attributed falsely, I, I understand, to Francis of Assisi. But whoever said it first, fact is it's not biblical. We cannot preach the gospel without words. Our lives are not the gospel, and how we live isn't the gospel. We do not live the gospel. We cannot be the gospel. The gospel is preached, not done. 
<clears throat> it requires specific words and the body's specific content. It is objective and historical fact to be declared. If the gospel is in any way me, or my example, or my life, or my faith, or my experience, then it is a weak, powerless thing that can provide no hope, but only bring disappointment. The gospel is Christ. It is his divine person taking on human flesh. It is his righteous fulfillment of the law. It is his perfectly pleasing the Father. It is his obedience unto death. It is his vicarious suffering for sin. It is his victorious resurrection, his glorious ascension, his faithful intercession, his righteous reign. It is his satisfactory substitutionary work for his people. The gospel is done by him and needs to be declared. So you and I cannot be the gospel, we cannot live the gospel, and we shouldn't use language that confuses us with Christ and his finished work with our work in progress, which is the fruit of his work. And I don't mean to be harsh on this point. I think I know what is usually intended by such language, but I think the effect is often not what is intended in that it brings the focus off of Christ and onto us. But the language isn't biblical, uh, as well-intended as it may be, and we would do better to use biblical language in describing the Christian life in relation to the gospel. So let's look at some things about what the Bible says specifically in this regard. Philippians 1.27 says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So, we don't live the gospel, but we live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. Ephesians 4.1, Paul says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you, to which you have been called. So we're to work, walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Colossians 1.10, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So we walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing Him, bearing fruit in every good work. And 1 Thessalonians 2.12 says, We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. Titus 2.10 tells us that we should live in such a way so as to adorn the gospel and 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11 says this. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understand this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and the profane, 
for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So here Paul talks about those who, whose lives are contrary to sound doctrine, but just as there are lives that are contrary, so we are to live a life that is in line with sound doctrine and that accords with or that is in accordance with the gospel. So we don't live the gospel, we live in accordance with the gospel in a way that adorns the gospel in a manner that is worthy of the gospel, worthy of our calling, worthy of the God who calls us by that gospel, but Christ alone will ever be the gospel. And all of our efforts at meeting the physical, temporal needs of others cannot replace the preaching of the gospel. And I say this because there are trends and there are movements um, among Christians today that, that emphasize some of these points of mercy ministry, points of uh, social transformation and, and things like that to a point where they are neglecting and displacing the faithful preaching of the gospel. And we have to <clears throat> guard, against, guard against that and be aware of that in the church. A non-Christian's greatest need is to hear the gospel. And in considering the issue of alleviating suffering in the world, Dever points out that the proclamation of the gospel addresses the greatest part of human suffering caused by the fall. It is true that all suffering is ultimately the result of sin. The fall brought suffering into the world. But much present suffering is the direct result of personal sin committed by or against those who are suffering. The gospel brings real tangible, powerful hope in alleviating suffering brought on by personal sins as people are freed from sin's guilt and power. But more, the gospel is the only hope to bring freedom from the certain eternal suffering awaiting all those who remain alienated and at enmity with God because of their sin. In our concern for the suffering of others and the desire to show them compassion and mercy, This ought to be our primary focus, even while we look for opportunities to meet their physical needs as well. John Piper appropriately says, we should be concerned to relieve all suffering, especially eternal suffering. And here you see the prioritization of the proclamation of the gospel, which alone is the power to save and deliver from the wrath of God. The proclamation of the gospel is central to fulfilling the great commission and the great commandments. Love for God and our neighbor should compel us to bring them the gospel. So Dever says, The Christian congregation is not required to take institutional responsibility for the physical needs of the unbelieving community. But the church is responsible for the proclamation of the gospel to all people. And further, he points out that the scriptures do make Christians responsible to care for the needs of the members of their own churches. And there are many places where this is made evident. 
In fact, many texts which seem to promote the idea of taking responsibility for our community's physical well-being are actually about charity to members of the covenant community, that is, believers, that non-Christian, and, and not, that is, not non-Christian members of the larger community. But one well-known passage uh, in Matthew 25 about the sheep and the goats, where <clears throat> Jesus says that the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick and in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. So this is talking about showing charity and meeting the needs of those brothers and sisters in the covenant community. Or also John, 1 John 3, 17-19 says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. So again, talking about seeing a brother in need. Same with James 2, 15 and 16. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So again, in all these texts, the person or people in need are those of the covenant community. They are brothers and sisters. And now this, again, is not to justify a hardness of heart to any of God's image bearers who are in need, but it's simply to identify the scriptural mandate given to the church of God as a church. In Acts 6, where the widows were neglected, we see the church is to implement means by which the physical needs of the church members are met and cared for. In all the texts regarding Paul's collection For the saints among the churches, the collection was just that. It was for the saints, for the poor saints in Jerusalem. But even the organized effort to meet the physical needs of the saints has limits. According to 2 Thessalonians 3.10, if the need is the result of laziness or idleness, it is not the responsibility of the church, but of the individual to work for their food. Likewise, in 1 Timothy 5 3 to 16, we read about how the church was to care for widows, but it is clear that it is speaking of Christian widows in the community, and that the responsibility fell first to the family of the widow before it fell to the church as a church, as an institution. Nevertheless, Christians should be concerned to do good to all people, as Paul says in Galatians 6.10. 
we are to <clears throat> do a, we are to do good, especially it says to those who are of the household of faith. And again, here Paul places the priority with the saints to care for and serve the needs of the saints. This peculiar love among the saints is the very thing Jesus said that will set us apart as his disciples. So, congregations need to carefully prioritize the responsibilities which are unique to the church. Evangelism, equipping for ministry, caring for the saints. And while it is proper for believers to be concerned with political and social issues, for medical and mercy ministries, the church itself is not the structure established by God for addressing such concerns. And churches should guard against being distracted by these from their unique responsibility of gospel proclamation. John Murray, professor from Westminster, has this to say. To the church is committed the task of proclaiming the whole counsel of God, and therefore the counsel of God as it bears upon the responsibility of all persons and institutions. While the church is not to discharge the functions of other institutions, such as the state and the family, nevertheless, it is charged to define what the functions of these institutions are. So in that sense, the the church has a prophetic role in the larger community um, and uh, should fulfill that, but but should not confuse its calling uh, with that of the state or the family. As we said, we prioritize the gospel proclamation in the church because ultimately it it is only the gospel which opens the door to the hope and certainty of the ultimate elimination of all suffering, pain, and need that sin has brought into the world. We proclaim the gospel because it is the only hope for poor sinners that they can finally and fully be set free from sin's corruption. All temporal alleviation of suffering, while good and right, is only partial and temporary. But the gospel brings eternal life and fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore in God's presence. And so, this then leads us to consider the last point, the hope of the church. The suffering that is an integral part of this fallen world will only come to an end with the bodily visible return of Jesus Christ. In Revelations 21.2, we are told that the heavenly city will come down out of heaven. It won't be built up to heaven as the work of man's hands. His coming and its arrival will be a radical break with the present evil age and will usher in the new heavens and the new earth. Mark Dever says, Its coming will be as one-sided as creation, the exodus, the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the regeneration of the individual heart. It is a great salvation act of God. If human culture can ever be said to be redeemed, it will be God's doing. It will be God doing it, not us. So I think the point is clear there. So the aim and effect 
of the gospel is not to renew the fallen structures of the world, but rather to create a new community of those who are purchased by the blood of the Lamb, who are washed with his word, and who are made ready for their king's return. The redeemed know that the joy of being reconciled to God and the prospect of being in his presence is superior to all the goods of this world. The liberal social gospel is no gospel and can deliver no real hope. The movement toward a theology of cultural transformation through the gospel is misdirected. The scripture gives no hope that society will be broadly and permanently transformed by the preaching of the gospel. This is not to deny that the gospel has powerful impact on individual lives and that individual conversions can and do have profound effects for good in this life. Christianity has been a powerful force for good in countless ways over the centuries throughout the world. But the church is not called to herald a present world utopia. The persistent themes and acts of judgment throughout the scriptures should put to rest any false hopes of such. Consider the flood, Babel, Sodom, Egypt, Canaan, Jerusalem, Babylon, Rome, and the final judgment which is depicted in Revelation 19. In 2 Peter 3, 7, Peter depicts a cataclysmic judgment that lays creation utterly barren. And it is only after this final judgment that the longed-for new creation will be established and the heavenly city will come down and the dwelling place of God will be with his people forever. Now, in... The concluding portions of his chapter on the hope of the church in his book, which I have here, Mark Dever briefly but really very helpfully unfolds something of the course of redemptive history beginning in the garden and culminating in the heavenly city. And to finish up here, I want to um, read a portion of that for you for your encouragement. I think it's... uh, very helpfully put. So let me get a drink of water here and I'll read that. If I can see well enough. He says that in the Bible, God's people are given great hope. God's people begin in a garden in Genesis 2 and 3, but end in a city in Revelation 21 and 22. The garden is Eden, and God created it to be the perfect environment for those made in his image. It had everything humans would need, from food to work to companionship. Most of all, the garden enjoyed God's own presence, And God enjoyed unbroken fellowship with his people in the garden. Sin destroyed the fellowship between God, man, and creation. 
But the destruction made way for an even greater display of God's glory in the church. In another garden, Christ faced Adam's choice to follow his own will or the will of his heavenly Father. In God's mercy and grace, Christ, the second Adam, chose to follow God's will and to take him at his word. What followed was the most terrible suffering by the only person ever undeserving of such suffering. Then, after he had borne the sins of his people as a substitute, and after he had exalted the claims of God's wrath against them, Christ was raised in victory over sin and death. He then poured out his spirit and created his church. From there, God's people have spread around the world to share the good news of Jesus Christ. The mission of the church will succeed. Jesus promised his disciples that the gates of Hades would not prevail against his church. Christians may wonder at God's patience with the church and fear for our own poor stewardship of the church, but we cannot be anything other than confident about the church. It will succeed. The church is God's plan and purpose. The culmination of history is pictured in the end of Revelation as a heavenly city, an eternal society of light in which God himself is personally present. The fellowship of Eden has been restored. Only this time, the number of inhabitants has been multiplied many millions of times over, as has the intimacy of fellowship since God's own spirit inhabits all those who trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sins. The garden has become the city. Faith gives way to sight. God's glory is magnified as the eternal love between the three persons of the Trinity is reflected forever in the interpersonal love shared between the bride and the groom, the Church of Christ. Christ's prayer for his disciples in John 17:26, will then be fully answered. Quote, I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. In the heavenly city, Christians will enter fully and eternally into the love of God. The church on earth today presents the glimmering and growing picture of this coming reality. So this, I think, eloquently put, is the hope of the church. This is where we look, this is what we long for, this is what we anticipate, and this is what will surely be ours in God's perfect timing. And with that, I want to just read... Revelation 21, 1 through 7, to conclude. And here, the Apostle John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. 
Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To the one who conquers, he will have this, this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. So with that, let's close out in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we are struck by this great vision. We are struck by your kindness and your mercy that you have provided for us such an amazing hope. And it's a hope that is certain. It is a hope that is secure. As certain and secure as your Son is righteous as certain and secure as your son satisfied your justice, as certain and secure as your son conquered the enemies of sin and death and Satan, as certain and secure as he now reigns at your right hand and is bringing all things into subjection to himself. Lord, we thank you that in your kindness you have brought us into subjection and we ask God that you continue that work of subduing anything in us that stands in opposition to your will. Conform us more to that glorious image of your Son. Help us to be a community of people who reflect your glory as we ought to in our demonstrations of love for one another, in our service to one another, in our service to others, in our proclamation of the gospel. Help us to be faithful in all of these things, that Christ may be glorified in the church. We pray in his name. Amen.